Father, we thank you that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. And we pray that um, as we look at this passage now, that your Spirit will open our eyes uh, to see who we are uh, and how we should behave. Uh, and we pray that he'll be transforming us, uh, that we might love and serve you rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Identity affects behavior. Who you are, or who you think you are, determines how you choose to act. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're in a big teaching hospital. If you were a doctor in that hospital, there are certain things you'd be doing while you were there. If you're a student in the hospital, you'd be doing things somewhat differently. If you were an inpatient in the hospital, you would take on a completely different role. And if you were a visitor, well, you'd act very differently again. Now, in whatever role you are in, you'll still be kind and gracious and loving and law-abiding and truthful because you have a bigger identity than the role you play in the hospital. But the illustration still stands. Who you are determines what you do. Today we are starting a new series in which we will look through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And here in these first eight verses, we're going to look at three things that mark our true identities. Identities that ought to revolutionize how we think about ourselves and therefore how we relate to others. Before we do that, let me just give you a brief background to the book of Philippians. Uh, we read in verse 1 that the letter is from Paul. Uh, Paul is an apostle, someone appointed by the risen Jesus who sent him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so he preached all over the Mediterranean region and planted churches in many places. And one of the places he planted a church was at Philippi. He had a very difficult time there. You can read about that in Acts 16. And now about 10 years later, Paul is in prison, probably in Rome. And the Philippians have sent him a gift, a money gift. And now he's writing a letter of thanks. Uh, but it's more than that. It's a letter of encouragement, of warning, of partnership, of joy. It shows his concern for their growth in godliness, for their unity, for their maturity. And it's a letter, like all Paul's letters, that finds its center in Jesus Christ, in who he is and what he's done. In addition to Paul, we also see the name Timothy in the opening greeting. Uh, Timothy was Paul's protege, a man who had been, he had been discipling and training and working with for many years, who had also visited Philippi with him. We read more about Timothy in the later on in the letter, but right here in the opening greeting, the important thing that we want to see is how Paul thinks of himself and of Timothy. We see his self-identity. For he introduces himself and Timothy by a title which is at the same time lowly and lofty. Verse 1 again, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now the word translated servant there, actually means slave. Now, Paul describes himself and Timothy as slaves of Jesus Christ. Now if Paul introduced himself as an apostle, then right now I might be talking to you about how we are different from Paul. We're not apostles, that's not our identity. But like Paul and like Timothy, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. He has redeemed us from slavery to sin and Satan, which would have resulted in death and hell. We've been bought with a price, his own blood shed for us on the cross. He has made us his slaves, which paradoxically gives us the freedom to be what we are really made to be, 
to be his. So we don't have an independent life. We are who we are, and who we are is defined by our association with our master. Our identity comes from our relationship with him. Not to be a slave of someone else would usually be a bad thing, but in God's economy, to be a slave of Jesus is an amazing privilege. To be a slave of the Lord is a high calling because of the greatness of our master, the rightful Lord of heaven and earth. And it is a happy calling because of the goodness of our master, who loves us and cared for us and even died for us. And so we serve him joyfully from the heart. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We are totally at his disposal. Whatever we do in work, in study, in ministry, in family, in rest, in relaxation, we do it as his slaves. And we work in our companies dependably and honestly because we are first and foremost slaves of Christ. And that's what he wants us to do if we are employees. And we love and serve our families because we are first and foremost slaves of Christ. And that's what he wants us to do if we have family responsibilities. And we study faithfully in school or in college or university because we are first and foremost slaves of Christ. And that's what he wants us to do if we're students. And we are generous with the poor and needy because we are first and foremost slaves of Christ. And that's what he wants us to do if we have the resources. We do whatever we can to promote the gospel with the gifts that God has given us because we are first and foremost slaves of Christ. And that's what, that's what his main goal is in this world at this point in history. We rest and relax. We take time off because we are first and foremost slaves of Christ and we need to recharge our batteries in order that we might serve him. In everything we do, we do because like Paul, like Timothy, we are servants of Christ and we count it a privilege and a joy. Our first identity. The second identity marker we have is again in verse 1. Uh, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, Macedonia, northeastern corner of Greece. And these saints in Philippi were led by overseers and deacons. And we can see the church there already has some structure which Paul acknowledges. And then in verse 2, he greets them with grace and peace from God the Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. But the thing I want us to focus on uh, here is the important word saints. The word saints means holy ones. The word holy means set apart for God, belonging to him in a special way. Now, that's not just for extra Christians. That word described every believer in Philippi. I will see that word again at the end of the letter. Uh, come with me to chapter 4, verse 21 and 23. Uh, in verse 21, Paul writes, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Be the saints, the holy ones, are those who are in Christ Jesus. Whether they are in Philippi, or in Rome, or in KL. Because if we are trusting in Christ as our Savior and King, united to Him by faith, then we, too, are holy. In the Old Testament, there were holy things and holy places. The New Testament doesn't have holy items, holy buildings, or even holy water. But it does have holy people. And that's you 
and that's me, if we are in Christ. We are holy. That is our identity. We are saints belonging to God in a special way. If you haven't been thinking of yourself as that, then now you have to love, right? We are saints, right? That's, that's St. Christine over there. St. Joseph is our virgin. St. Esther read the New Testament for us. You are saints. You are holy. Not because of your high moral performance, but because you were bought with the blood of Christ and you belong to him. Of course, that identity affects your behavior. You wouldn't take a holy thing and use it for evil purposes, would you? That would be sacrilegious. Knowing that you wouldn't take your body and use it for sexual immorality, would you? Because that would outrage the holiness of God. And you wouldn't say, as the worldly people do, oh, no, this is my body, because you know that your body belongs to him. You are holy, set apart for God. You are his. You are a saint. That's, that's your new identity. Now, you see the connection between being a servant and being a saint? It's both about belonging to God. Both give us identity, which affects the way we live. Now, if you belong to Jesus and I belong to Jesus, then part of how we serve Jesus is expressed in how we relate to each other. And the model of relating that we see modeled here in Philippians is that of partnership. Partnership in the gospel. Is there in verse 5 when, when, when Paul talks about their, to the Philippians about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Right? The word partnership is the Greek word koinonia. And koinonia in the Greek world means having something in common. Right? It meant sharing together in something. Uh, it can be translated fellowship in some places, communion in other places. Right? So we, we speak about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about that we share together in God's Holy Spirit. What a wonderful bond, isn't it? That it gives us that we share the same Spirit. When we call the Lord's Supper Holy Communion, we're emphasizing the fact that we gather together, we share together in the benefits of Christ's death. What a wonderful way to exercise partnership with Him and with each other. Partnership or fellowship or communion, but what we share together. And what we share together in gospel partnership is the gospel and all that God gives us through it. That's why Paul calls this partnership in verse 5, your partnership in the gospel. We're sharing together in the benefits of the gospel and working together to promote it. Now, partnership is very different from consumerism, isn't it? Right? When you go to the shops as a customer, you're not a partner, you're a consumer. You decide which shop you go to, and you go according to your own convenience. If there are problems in the shop, you wouldn't offer your help to solve them, because you're, you're just a customer, you're a consumer. But just imagine you were a partner in the business, then you would just go whenever you feel like it. You wouldn't think, oh, it's closer for me to go to the other shop today, so I'll just go there instead. No. When you go there, you won't just be browsing, you, you'd be working because, you know, 
just a customer. You're a partner. Many churches in the Klang Valley have a consumer mentality. Many people in the Klang Valley have a consumer mentality when it comes to church. I'd like the shops at the mall, the church is there for my convenience at my convenience. And if I don't feel like coming today, well, never mind, I just watch the live stream. Or the road might be blocked today, uh, never mind, I just go to another church instead. Right? Doesn't matter as long as I get my product. Now, please don't think I'm having a go at live streaming or visiting other churches. I thank God for the live stream. If you're on live stream, thank God for you. Because live stream enables us to be partners with people who, for very good reasons, are unable to come to church. And if you can't be at your own church, well, it's good that you can be at another one. No problem with that. But what I am saying is that we need to think of ourselves not as consumers, but as partners. And then, within whatever limitations we personally face, make our choices about attendance and all those other things with that mindset. So what does partnership look like? Well, let's look more closely at the model of partnership that the Holy Spirit gives us here in that partnership between Paul and the Philippians. We see a number of things. Now, first of all, we see that gospel partnership is a cause for thanksgiving and joy. Listen to what Paul says in verses 3 to 5. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Right? Gospel partnership is a joyous thing to thank God for. What a wonderful thing it is, isn't it, to have other people who share your experience of being loved and saved by Jesus. That's the most, that's a wonderful thing. And what a glorious thing to have brothers and sisters who, who will keep on reminding you of Christ and help you keep close to him. What a good thing it is that you can work side by side with other saints and servants to serve our master. And it's as we work together, as we labor together for the gospel, as we remember the gospel together, that our relationships are cemented. When we strive together for that higher gospel goal, the glory of God, and we sacrifice together for the sake of the gospel, that's, that's when our fellowship shows itself strongest. Right? If we simply strive for the joy of fellowship, let's have fellowship. In the end, it will elude us. But we strive together for the gospel and we find joy in fellowship. Brothers and sisters, gospel partnership is a joyous thing. It's so much better than doing it all alone. Let's not take each other for granted. Think of the people just sitting around you. Thank God for them. Let's thank God for each other. And like Paul, let's tell each other how thankful we are for each other. Now, why does Paul thank God for this gospel partnership and then tell the Philippians rather than just thank them? Why does God get the glory for it? Well, it is because true gospel partnership finds its basis in God's work, not ours. God had, in verse 6, begun a good work in the Philippians. 
The church in Philippi had been started through the preaching of the gospel. God had sent Paul to tell them that, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again as Lord. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And God had opened their hearts and had granted them faith to believe. And Paul was sure, verse 6, that God who began that good work in them would bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Right? He would work in them both to will and to act according to his good purpose, he would keep them faithful to the end. And on the last day, he would raise them up and transform their lowly bodies to be like Christ's resurrected body. He would do that for the Philippian saints. He would do that for Paul and Timothy as well. That was his gospel promise. God had begun that work. He will finish it. And so the foundation for their partnership, the only reason they could be gospel partners, was God's work of grace in each of their lives. And brothers and sisters, that's the same for us, isn't it? The underlying basis for our partnership in the gospel is God's work in each of us. God sent his son to die for our sins and raise him as Lord. That is, that is God's gospel. And by it, he saved us when he opened our hearts to believe. And by it, he will keep us until we stand in glory with him forever. That is what we share in common as gospel partners. Without the work of God in our lives, we could still maybe be friends. But we could never be gospel partners. Gospel partners, gospel partnership starts with God's work in us that he will carry to completion. That is why we thank God for gospel partnership. The next thing to note about this gospel partnership is that it is sustained with words. Right? This whole letter is an act of communication by Paul to his gospel partners. Right? He's taking the efforts to write this whole letter. And notice the kind of things he writes about. It's all about Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's about living as God's people. And those are the kind of things we need to keep reminding each other of as gospel partners. As gospel partners, we're continually communicating the gospel to each other. Every time we come to church, when we sing a hymn that speaks of the gospel, or every time we, we read the Bible, or we, we recite the creed, what are we doing? We are reminding each other of the gospel, aren't we? Every time we discuss a Bible passage in our small groups, or we read the Bible to someone one-to-one, -one, or we do the daily office together, or, or we chat informally uh, in the tea terrace about how to apply the sermon in our lives, we, we're reminding each other of the gospel. Every time we pray for each other, we pray for our friends, we, we do so with the gospel in mind. Every time we plan together, how to reach others with the gospel, or how to serve God in our workplaces. We're expressing our partnership in words as we plan. Gospel partners talk about the gospel, how it's working out in their lives and ministries. Now, this doesn't mean the only thing we talk about, but we do talk about that. Gospel partnerships are sustained by gospel-based communication. And the next thing we notice about the partnership with Paul and Philippians is that their gospel partnership is expressed in prayer. Gospel partners pray for each other. Now Paul says in verse 4 that in all my prayers for you, I pray with joy. That's being a gospel partner, isn't it? 
We appreciate each other's prayers. And that's something that we can all do. I know of some godly old people, both here and overseas, who pray regularly for Judy and myself. Some of them can't get out and do active ministry anymore, but they do pray. And that's such an important thing, such an important part of gospel partnership. But I tell you what, I really appreciate their prayers. Really appreciate your prayers. I need you to pray for me to be godly in my activity, in my relationships. You need to pray for me to prepare sermons that are faithful to God's word and, and relevant to our lives. I need you to pray for me as I try to lead my family and our leaders and our congregations in gospel work. I know I'm terribly inadequate for all this. It's only God's grace that sustains me. So I need you to pray for me. I need you to do the same for our pastoral team, our council, all our leaders. All who serve in various ways. We all pray for each other. We rely on God to work among us. And let's just pray for each other. We pray for those who are our gospel partners who have gone outside. Let's pray for our bishop and our diocese and our gospel partners with them. Let's keep praying for Amy, our missionary, who is heading back to Romania. Let's keep praying for people and churches who we know are spreading the gospel around the world. God works through the prayers of his people. Gospel partnerships expressed in prayer. The next thing we see about Paul's partnership with the Philippians is the, the depth of affection he feels towards them. A gospel partnership leads to emotional affection. Paul says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. And then again, in verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul is in prison far, far away. He's in Rome. The Philippines are in Philippi. It's very far. But they're in his thoughts. For well, the love and fondness and warmth between them is still there and he longs for them with deep affection. I think I know something of what Paul feels in this regard and I think you would as well as you look around and see your brothers and sisters around you. As I think about our church, there is a love and a fondness and bond I feel towards you. I don't know how you feel about that. You know, I think, oh, Andrew's getting all sentimental. Oh, pass me the bucket or something like that. I, but your affections are in my heart. As your fellow servant in Christ, I, I can say I, I love you in a godly kind of way. And that love is forged by serving together, believing together. And I hope you can say that about each other as well. So you think about the people in your small groups, so you think about the people in the ministries that you're involved in, so you think about the people just sitting around you in church each Sunday. That's what partnership's about. We grow in affection for each other. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not some law, you know, thou must feel affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. No, it's, not, it's not like that. It's just a natural thing that comes out of our working together for the gospel. 
Gospel partnership is expressed in affection for our gospel partners. For Paul and the Philippians, their partnership was cemented through the sharing together in hardship for the sake of the gospel. Our Paul says to the Philippians in verse 7, in between those two expressions of affection, he says, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Gospel ministry is sometimes a struggle. Being a Christian is sometimes a struggle. But when we go through tough times and we face them together, our partnership is strengthened. Now, Paul is in prison, and the Philippians are not just going to dissociate with him out of fear or shame. Instead, they pray for him, and they show their care for him in practical ways. Gospel partners support each other in hardship, and in particularly as they suffer for the gospel. Do you suffer for being a Christian? Are you rejected by family or friends? Well, if that is the case, please share with your brothers and sisters. Among us, there should be no shame in suffering for Christ. It ought to be a badge of honor. And brothers and sisters, look out for those who are suffering for the gospel. We mustn't shy away from brothers and sisters who are facing hardships. We must help and support them in their troubles. That's partnership, fellowship in the gospel. The final expression of partnership we see in Philippians is in the matter of giving and receiving. Now back in verse 3, the Greek reads ambiguously. It says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Right? It could mean, probably most likely, what our translation implies, that is, Paul thanks God every time he remembers the Philippians. Or it could be, I thank my God in every remembrance of you, that Paul thanks God every time the Philippians remember him. It could be either way. If the latter is correct, he's referring to how the Philippians have shown their concern for him by sending him gifts. Now, either way, we know that the Philippians had sent Paul money while he was in prison. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 14, uh, Paul talks about the ascending of Epaphroditus with gifts for him, uh, a matter of their partnership together or their fellowship together, where it says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. The word sharing there is the partnering, fellowshipping. And that was just the latest in an ongoing pattern of support. He goes on in 4.15 to say, And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Uh, in fact, from the very beginning when he first left Philippi to go to his next station, which was Thessalonica, they were the ones who supported the ministry to make it financially viable. And so he says in verse 16, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs, once and again. So you see, partnership in giving and receiving among gospel-minded people is an expression of that partnership in the gospel. It's the matter of some people using the resources God has given them to support other people to spend more time to promote the gospel. Same thing for us. All of us have resources. We all chip in something. Some got more, chip more. Some got less, chip less. 
But we all chip in. It's the partnership. It's not the amount, it's the partnership that it represents. Using money together to spread the gospel. I was so encouraged the other day when our stewardship team alerted us to the shortfall in our ministry apprenticeship fund. It's a really important fund because it funds the training of new gospel workers for the future. And the message went out, several people very quickly make contributions to the fund. Why? Because we're in gospel partnership. If we were consumers at the supermarket and we heard the supermarket was running low on funds in a certain area, that just wouldn't be our concern, would it? At the very most, we just, oh, heard that supermarket losing money in such a department. I hope they don't close down because otherwise I have to go to the other supermarket. It's further away. The food not so fresh. The price is a bit higher. You know? But what you'd never do as a consumer is send money to the supermarket to support. You just wouldn't do that. That's just not, it's not the kind of relationship you have with them. But you do that here because we are partners. And I thank you for the partnership you have in training the next generation of gospel workers. When the Philippians sent Paul money so he could preach the gospel full-time in Thessalonica, they became partners in the mission there. Through Paul, they were doing mission in Thessalonica. Likewise, as we support Amy Ting in Romania, uh, as we support John Sivakoti to bring the gospel to Nepalis in Shalam, as we support our pastors and church workers here, we, we share in their ministry. As we give money to the diocese as part of our quota, we are sharing in the ministry of Anglican churches across Malaysia. Gospel partnership means that we give money so that other people can take it and use it to promote the gospel. So brothers and sisters, today we have looked at three aspects of our identity. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. We are saints of the Most High God. And we are gospel partners with each other. And we have seen that gospel partnership means sharing together in the benefits of the gospel and working together to promote it. It is a joyous thing. It's sustained with words, it's expressed in prayer and financial support and affection, even in the midst of hardship. Let us make every effort to remember who we are and gladly live out our identity as slaves, saints, and partners in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your grace you have made us slaves, saints, and partners in the gospel. Please help us to grasp our true identities and to find our joy in living for you in fellowship with each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.